Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Today on the Whole Whale podcast, we have somebody who was referred to Whole Whale by none other than a, a frequent guest and teacher on Whole Whale, uh, Josh from Roundtable. And we, uh, we tend to pay attention when he says this person knows what they are doing, knows what they are doing with regard to data privacy and fundraising. So I was introduced to Elise Walnut, the founder and principal at Agility Lab Consulting. Agility Lab Consulting. And that's, uh, I believe, Agility Lab Consulting, uh, agilitylab.io. AgilityLab.io is their website, and we're excited because Agility Lab has just founded and starting their work. And I will say, Elise comes with an incredible background. Previously, senior director marketing advertising at World Food Program. Yeah, you might have heard of it in the U.S. I also spent time director in strategy at the Center for American Progress. Uh, spent time at Media Cause for a year, and of course. Uh, a little organization called the Nature Conservancy as a senior associate director, uh, digital acquisition. So safe to say, you know your stuff. I'm excited. I'm excited to learn from you. Thank you for coming on. Anything I, I missed, Elise? No, thanks, George. It's it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, you caught my eye immediately because you started speaking my language before we turned on record by talking about the sort of like cookie apocalypse, the cookie apocalypse. So I don't know if that's the right place to start, but things are going to get weird in 2023 for fundraisers. Why? Yeah. So you're probably all aware as consumers about how much more aware we become about how our data is being used. I think that that's been a much more popular topic of conversation in the last couple of years. And audience demand for privacy has really picked up. We saw the EU adopt privacy laws with GDPR in 2016, which really set the standard. And U.S. Uh, legislators have taken note as well. So there are five states in the U.S. implementing privacy laws this year. And with that, uh, big tech is really paying attention to how they need to protect their reputations um, and stay in compliance. So they are eliminating what's called third-party cookies, and that's a, it's a little piece of code that is what allows marketers to stand up ads that uh, essentially follow you around the internet. So those, you know, that pair of pants or shoes that you can't stop seeing, it's, it's that pixel or that, that third-party cookie that allows for that. So um, the reason it's, it's troublesome is most people consider it not consented data use. So what we're moving toward with the elimination of third-party cookies is marketers are only going to be able to use consented information. So the information that you provide to them. So we're looking at things like what you provide in a form when you donate, what you provide when you fill out that petition, um, and, and things of that nature. So that's really going to require us to be a lot more thoughtful about our targeting strategies. You caught my attention here with saying that there are five states. I was only aware of 
the New York Shield and CCPA in California. But it feels like, can I just summarize saying like, where one goes, all must follow. It's essentially like, I love how American states are like so feudal when it comes to internet laws and even like registration. So I know that nonprofits have to register each state for fundraising, even though you have one donation form on your site. Yes, this is where data privacy third-party cookies are going. Like, how do you advise? Because obviously you're offering like consulting advice on how to approach this. How do you advise folks of being like, oh, no, no, you got to do this here, 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 here. What is the approach? So the good thing about the uh, five states that are implementing this right now is that the laws are are pretty similar. Um, What it allows for is audience members to request that their information um, can be deleted from your file, essentially. So they can call you up and say, hey, I want to know everything you have on record about me. I want to view that information. And if I want you to get rid of it, you have to. So most of the states are are pretty aligned on where they're following with that. And to your point, George, I think most of the states are probably going to have to fall in line eventually based on uh, demand from constituents that's not going to stop. And there's actually um, a bipartisan supported federal bill that's pending. Um, it's gotten a little bit stalled up, but made progress in 2023. And if that comes to fruition, that will create that federally supported framework. So my advice for nonprofits is to start treating this like it's already a reality and to start getting prepared for something you can put in place operationally across the board. There's no really a point in standing up, you know, a set of operations for Colorado versus California um, because they're, they're pretty similar. So GDPR is the most aggressive. And luckily, we already know what that looks like uh, from the EU. And if you use that as a framework, you're pretty much guaranteed to be in compliance with what the states stand up here. And just to play it out more practically, let's say you get, because it's a, a right of right of removal, I think, for your data. What mm-hmm. if that's not followed in, what is it, 30 days or 90 days? What are the kind of penalties you're seeing for this? Uh, so what we just saw, actually, um, Facebook got hit with a really large fine by the EU for not following privacy compliance. Um, so when you're out of compliance, you can get hit with fines. Um, you, you will have more of that, that illegal eye on you. And it really could impact you in terms of audience trust more broadly. Um, so that's where I've been encouraging people to think of this as more of an opportunity rather than a slap on the hand. And um, when we're showing audiences that we care about respecting their rights and how their data is used, you can really build your brand and make sure that you are front and center of building that trust conversation. And just to be clear, let's say there's a, a privacy at myorganization.org. I, George, email them saying, you know, I'm sort of invoking my right for removal, right to be forgotten. Uh, Please present and remove any and all data. This is an official notice. Let's say that goes to that email and the organization is like, this is the first time we've ever seen it. Like, What does it actually mean? So it means that you're going to have to go through your CRM present everything that you know about, but you also need to have a handle on how you've been releasing data to third parties. So 
you know, when you're uploading a person's email address into Facebook so that you can serve ads to them, you're also releasing some of that data to Facebook. So there are things that you can implement, like Facebook's conversion API that allow you to self-select some of those fields and get your third-party options in uh, better compliance, being more risk-averse there. But really, it involves you being able to tell people what you have on them um, in, you know, your own sphere, but also how you've been using their their data externally. So the idea is that you don't want it to take you three weeks to execute one of these requests. You want to be able to make sure that your staff knows how to uh, turn this over and make sure that it is you know, scalable and your approach is able to be right-sized um, and also that your privacy policy reflects what people can expect. So if you have 45 days to to do this, is it going to take you all 45 or can people expect to see something in 10? So you really need to be able to set the tone for um, what audiences should get from you and when. I see a lot of headaches in the future here. I mean, clearly... Unfortunately, my mind goes toward more of a predatory attack, potentially, um, where you could sort of deluge an organization with um, hundreds of these requests um, and really bog down a technical team. So certainly, I think having a plan in place for how do you do this in, in batch and do it efficiently, especially if you are on the front lines of organizations that dance on contentious issues, we'll say, is that a, is that a fair thought? Yeah, we're actually seeing whole companies uh, being stood up just to provide for that. And, you know, it's flooding businesses with requests from consumers. You know, as the consumer, you can hire them to go and do this for you and they'll hit everything you've ever email subscribed to. So that is where you need to be able to make sure you have operational process in line and you know um, what is fair game to be released and and what's not um, and and how you're going to treat that. Yeah, it sounds like um, a lot of work. I, I, I don't want to spend too much more time here unless there's something I'm maybe missing on the, the right to be forgotten and those policies coming up. Really, the most important thing, well, not the most important thing, but another important thing to refer uh, marketing teams to also consider here is that um, Data minimization is going to be your legal team's recommended approach. So it's really important for you to get a good handle on what the states consider uh, personal information, what those fields look like, and also for you to know the business reason that you're ingesting certain data fields and what you want your retention period to be and what fields you're willing to, you know, forego. So if you know that you're going to lose some of that third-party tracking, what do you need to know on a first-party level in terms of, you know, person's age and their interest categories and, and all the other things that make us understand what makes a person tick? You need to have a good handle on that so that you can sit at the table with the legal team and uh, engage with them productively on what can stay and what can go. I mean, I don't even know how you would go about finding that individual's third-party cookie that you're using to track them around the internet and delete it. I mean, I think you acknowledge it, but is there a way to like signal out that one, you know, unique identifier inside of the walls of Google and and others? Uh, no, I, well, you. So, what most people are approaching this as 
and, and again, this needs to come through in the privacy policy is there are services that will let a person like you or me, George. Gotcha. Yeah. Go wipe my. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so an organization can say, hey, we're going to recognize signals from those types of services or not. Uh, and that's what you need to make clear in your privacy policy. because You're not technically legally obligated to do that yet. But in the future, when third party cookies are wiped, that's going to go away for all of us. Yeah exist as a capability and when is the is the deadline for removing third-party cookies so they you won't have to do anything to remove them uh google's gonna do it for you supposedly uh <laughs> firefox already doesn't support third-party cookies there's several other browsers that don't um but chrome is owns 64 percent of the market share when it comes to browsers and they Google is saying that 2024 is the year they're going to make good on this promise. And it's notable. This timeline has shifted a lot because Google hasn't quite figured out how they're going to make up the revenue loss on their end, is my guess. Uh, so they are, they keep extending it. But 2024 is is what they say uh, the deadline will be. We've already seen, you know, thank you for explaining a bit about cookies and kind of how they're used and the the Apple fallout, I feel like is still coming. So maybe you can talk a bit about how fundraisers are needing to adapt to the reduction in tracking ability in email and maybe market it with regard to Facebook advertising. Yeah. So the question I get asked um, often is, why is Facebook acquisition struggling and what are we going to do to replace it? And I think what people are missing is that Facebook is just the first because they were hit so hard with Apple's changes. When Apple forced web developers to say that um, they had to ask users for permission to track them, 94% of those users said, no, I don't want to be tracked. So Facebook lost a lot of capabilities to target people outright and also to create lookalike models based on what they knew about people's behaviors. So what you're seeing for Facebook is just representative of the struggle you're going to also have on Google via paid search ads and the like when third-party cookies are wiped out. So it's really the time to take stock of understanding what's working on your file, doing some contextual audits to get a sense of what you know about your audiences and what you want to know so that you can collect those inputs and also so that you can do more one-to-one media buying if it came to it. And you might want to understand, hey, we we stood up ads on this site and they worked, but not this site. So we're going to play more toward that type of content category. And we're also going to take that one step further and build our, our content strategy so that it focuses more on that type of topic. Uh, so you might think about those pieces now while you still have the capability to see into uh, your Google results. So the other thing that is really important to understand about third-party cookie elimination is that there will be analytics implications with GA4 coming into play um, and with third-party cookies wiping out, you know, Facebook and other advertising capabilities to see a pixel fire, you're going to have to feed that information more manually. And you're also going to need to adjust your attribution model potentially to uh, make changes so that you understand 
the state of play and how things are converting or not. I think the way I'm kind of trying to position this is less moving forward about who people are with regard to their cookie footprint and more mm-hmm. about what they do. This is going to be a behavior first environment. And, you know, you mentioned GA4. I have the feeling based on numbers, conversations, and what I'm seeing, I have the feeling that a lot of folks are not ready for the hard transfer from universal analytics, the number one used web tracking analytic on the interwebs, Mm. stopping in July, like done, done like dinner, gone. Not till November, but until gone. Won't work. And then suddenly everyone's going to have to use GA4, which is very clearly Google's response to cookie apocalypse, GDPR, rising concerns of the way the fundamentals of universal analytics work don't work in this new environment, which is why this is happening. Uh, What is your take? How are you positioning this transfer and thinking? So in terms of my advice for people, I would start operating like it's happening tomorrow and taking stock of what you've learned and the benefits of having all these tracking capabilities in place now uh, by creating and documenting all of those insights so that you can say, hey, you know, right now I'm on this really sophisticated attribution model that lets me see all of the touch points that led up to a conversion. But if those go away tomorrow and if I never had them at my discretion, how would I make different decisions? So if I am only able to see that a person gave on this donation form and I know nothing else about their past, how how would I apply some of the learnings from the past to to get to that? So um, I would look at what you learned about, you know, when I was at the Nature Conservancy, we were finding that it took an average of 16 touch points for a person to decide to give. And those were the ones that we could track. So knowing that how many emails do you need to get in front of them? How many, you know, direct mail placements do you need to, to hit them with? What are the more creative outlets that you could uh, apply with influencer marketing and um, more of that thought leadership lens that harken back to, you know, a decade ago before we had all of these uh, capabilities at our hands and had to operate, you know, more like creative marketers. Getting to that touch point model, and thank you for, for sharing that, having to be top of mind for your audience, losing the tool of remarketing hurts. I don't know. I like, I think that's the technical word hurts. What if it help is my question. (laughs) So that's where I think that piece of the contextual auditing is going to be really important so that, you know, I think the word persona is overused and it means so many different things, but really getting that fine tuned understanding of what makes people tick, um, and like you said, based on their behaviors, what they're doing. So qualitative data is one thing. You can ask people in a survey how they feel, what they think. But we've seen the downfall of qualitative data uh, with, you know, election polls and, and whatever else. So we know that we have to take that with a grain of salt. So understanding quantitative data and, and what's working, I think, will help you make those decisions about the content that you're standing up and uh, your forward path to creating uh, what's called a first-party data acquisition strategy 
um, and making sure that you're creating content that's going to give people a reason to give you their email address so that you can do that more manual retargeting with with emails and and other services. So you mentioned email, you know, when Apple flipped the, the switch there, we started to see some wonky things in our yeah. open rates, confusing numbers of being like, we're doing great, but are we? Can you explain yes. a little bit more? Because so much of, I'll, I'll say, the digital fundraising tactics that Full Whale pushes forward rely on those email data. Can you explain what's going on, why we may not be able to trust our open rates and what we can do as, uh, you know, moving forward in this environment? Yeah, so that goes back to the same iOS update um, that impacted mobile app developers on the advertising side and it also hit email. So the metric to watch now is, is click data. That is what allows you to understand if a person actually engaged or not. And everything before that is a bit amiss because of the tracking capabilities that are missing now. So the, the metric you want to watch is um, engagement. And that is because, you know, that that information is visible on your side and it's, you know, considered your data. So paying attention to all of those content insights is what I would focus on right now. And, you know, there's never been a more important time to make sure you have really good um, reasons for a person to click through and engage so that you can factor in uh, that email engagement rate. So difficult because sometimes the purpose of an email is to deliver that experience in that platform, in that medium, and not click mm -hmm. through, not lose mm -hmm. that extra step. When you do that, though, you're getting less data. So you know, we know that that strategy has worked in the past, but it's tough to also say like, oh, we're not saying only send like two words and be like, click to see the rest. <laughs> we're holding your content hostage until you give us data in the form of clicks. Uh, it, I mean, I, I don't know. Are you recommending that? Is that the trade-off or are you just like, know what you're not getting? Yeah, I think there's, so one of the things that I've been playing with in my own email strategy is encouraging people to reply to an email or do something that's other engagement um, and you reply to say, hey, this is why I signed up for your email list. Whatever, whatever type of content that you think um, might be engaging and might give you some information that you can scale, that's another mechanism for people to really show interest and, and give you data that is consented that you might be able to gain some, some insights from. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I, I would not recommend sending a two-word email that just says click. But I would say that you should start um, optimizing content in the way that we used to optimize for subject lines to get that open. You know, you still need a good, you still need a reason for people to open, but that's not your primary focus. Your primary focus and your metric basis should be on um, what you're doing to, to get the engagement and those insights. And so you mentioned that in 2024, Google Chrome is going to be making this change. Does this also extend to Android and Gmail in terms of that tracking? Will open rates, put another way, be completely null and void as we get into 2024 of that change? Or do I not I under do am I misunderstanding this? It's so Chrome, so Safari has already been hit by this with full. Um, so anything that's happening on your iPhone right now is is not really 
trackable in terms of third-party cookies. Um, in Android land, what is the primary browser for Androids? It's Chrome, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Chrome, yeah, everything will stop being supported there. So yeah, unless you're using some device that none of us are aware of at this moment, <laughs> it's, it's really going to be hurting. I guess if you're opting into some browser that's, that's very small in market share, um, effectively, this is really just going to need to be the wholesale change. So I think this all comes back to the same thing, which is that this is just kind of the way of the world now where audiences, they're not going to get less aware of how their their data is being used. So you should probably adjust for that and uh, take the opportunities that you have to be a leader in the space and, you know, let people know how their data is being used, be upfront about what you will do to to respect their space and their privacy and make proactive changes so that you're not caught off guard. And we yes. saw a really good example of this actually. Um, the New York Times in 2020 became the first major publisher who went to a first-party data-only model. So they completely stopped using third-party supported um, information. And the way that they were able to scale that is they came up with a really creative content tagging strategy where you know, they're tagging their content based on a range of different things, whether that's, you know, emotion evoked, author, topic, et cetera. But with those insights, when an advertiser comes to them and says, hey, I want to place an ad on content that has this type of feel, the New York Times can offer that with completely consented data because it's based on what people are doing on their site in a in state. So the New York Times is a great example of a content publisher doing that. And obviously, it's not completely replicable for the, those of us who are not uh, you know, news outlets. But I think that there are things that we can learn from them in terms of giving people all reason to log in, which is easier said than done, but is a case for brainstorming what some creative product development might look like. And also thinking about the context of the content that you're putting out and how you might uh, do it differently in terms of both tagging and the, the actual content within so that you are setting yourself up to to get good data insights from it and uh, to make sure that you are setting your data or setting your content up in a way that has a clear funnel toward monetization. It's a move kind of back toward the old school intent driven ads. What mm -hmm. is the uh, user intent? And it's more clear on Google search than probably any other platform at this point. If I'm searching for ways to support the environment, it's pretty clear I care about a couple things. I have a desire to take action and that action is revolving around learning more about the environment. Guess what? That might be a good moment to introduce yourself as the Nature Conservancy. And what's interesting is that uh, last year was the first year in recent memory that the total combined ads, as I understand the stat um, from being spent, total ad spend of Google, Facebook, who used to dominate pretty much the entire market, fell, um, fell below 50%, which means there's like a rise of the rest coming. And I wonder if you can talk about how we'll have our own data of emails, but then we'll be like shopping around in a much larger marketplace and needing to make a lot more decisions than ever before uh, as it relates to data opportunity, however you want to take this, uh, this fly ball. 
Yeah, yeah. You, uh, in terms of things like co-op partnerships, I think those are some of the options that are at our discretion. Um, and I think that's where knowing third-party data terms is going to be really important so that you're making really practical decisions to understand how um, those partnerships are working. You know, I think that there are some organizations that can offer um, email addresses at scale, and you want to make sure that they are also GDPR compliant and following CAN-SPAM rules and doing things in a way that aren't going to get you into hot water. Uh, so that's, I think, point number one is you're going to need to be newly aware of and deeply aware of as a marketer, right? the decisions you're making on that front. Um, and also you're going to need to consider efficiency. So I think when it comes to the efficiency question, obviously the third-party data pieces are what allowed us to scale so quickly. Um, but I would test a range of different publishers who are not so much reliant on um, third-party cookies and start getting those insights now so that you get a sense of how things are going to perform and you can scale that later. So there are publishers who are exploring this in a pretty forward-thinking way. You know, I spoke with Basis Technologies last week just as, a, as an example, but um, they're already exploring how they can garner uh, marketing techniques that put advertising out there in a way that isn't um, illegal. That's it will be later. Yeah, well, it's going to get pretty interesting. Any other points you want to make before we move into our rapid fire about coming data, privacy changes, what organizations need to be prepared for? I think really just making sure that as, you know, a marketer or a fundraiser, wherever it is you sit on that spectrum, that you consider the implications in a forward-thinking way um, and don't think of privacy as something that's just for the IT and legal teams. I think it's going to impact your job in a way that it just didn't previously. And that's going to be the state of play from here forward. So I would make sure that you understand you know, what your privacy policy says, make sure it's covering you, make sure your legal team knows what you're up to so that um, you are protecting your organization and ultimately your brand, which is your job. So that's the big piece that I would hammer home there. That's super helpful. All right, rapid fire time, roughly 30 second responses. And just to kick it off, what is one tech tool or website that you started using in the last year? Uh, so I have been using um, Kajabi. That's how I built my site and I, really enjoy that if you are looking to build a website which is probably a, a small number of people um, i'm also exploring notion um, i'm late to the game there but that is a tool that's um i need a replacement for evernote because my evernote syncing has done very bad uh, between my devices so i'm looking for a, a replacement note taking app maybe that follows into tech issues you're currently battling with <laughs> yeah yeah i would say Data sync issues between devices has been a big one for me, uh, where I'll write myself a to-do on my phone and it's not showing up on um, my desktop version. So that is a big problem. Who's coming in the next year that has you the most excited? What's coming? Yeah, what's coming up? Um, personally, professionally, it doesn't matter. Oh, let's do one 
one professional and one personal. Now let's <laughs> ask. Uh, I would say professionally, you know, this is my first year in business for myself. So I am excited to um, be able to know what to predict for 2024 and know what I can scale and um, how things need to pivot. I think entrepreneurship has always been something I've been very intrigued by and I'm excited to be, you know, taking the plunge. Personally, um, I'm going to Greece for the first time in March. So that should be a great time. Awesome. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today. This is a good question. I think one of the most valuable insights I've learned over the years is when it's important to have at least a verbal conversation, if not an in-person conversation, rather than trying to make it work over email, Slack, et cetera. Um, I think sometimes people rely on the efficiency of email and, and written comms. Um, and I know I certainly overlied on that in the past. And sometimes it's really important to just take the time to take somebody to coffee and recognize that that's going to do more service to what you're trying to get done than hammering home a deadline well. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Successfully go out of business? Yeah, I do. I think that it is, there are a lot of solvable problems. You know, when I was at World Food Program, we called hunger the world's most solvable problem. I think it's a matter um, of building the operational infrastructure to be able to ingest the money that would allow you to go out of business. If you got some huge donor, are you going to be able to scale your operation that quickly and think about the components that would need to go into that? So I think um, nonprofits need to be able to operate in a way that allows them to have those overhead pieces taken care of and the sound operational infrastructure that allows for that. If I were to put you in a hot tub time machine back to the beginning of your nonprofit work, what advice would you give yourself? Hmm. Um, I would say to be unafraid to, to speak. I had a mentor early in my career who made clear that if you were invited to a meeting, it was for a reason and your voice needed to be heard. And I think, especially in uh, a female in this industry, you can can take a step back from that at the beginning of your career. You, there's some, I think, imposter syndrome among all of us, but especially among young women. So I would speak. If I were to give you a magical wand that you could wave and change something in the industry, what would it do? I think we'd be a lot further ahead on diversity initiatives and understanding how they come into play in every facet of what we do. I think nonprofits are just catching up to this conversation and we still think of it as, you know, we need a diverse hiring pool and we don't necessarily understand all the things that go into building that that talent pool. So making sure that we have cultures that diverse communities would want to work within and uh, that that respect um, the different standpoints that we all come from, that's what I would change, would be further along. What is something that you think you should stop doing? I should stop doing I should stop drinking more than one cup of coffee a day. <laughs> I, uh, I'm playing with my, my workflow for the day and the optimal time to make sure I'm 
I, I used to exercise first thing in the morning and I'm pivoting that more toward toward the the mid-afternoon, which are, I guess are the luxuries of being an entrepreneur. But um, playing with the caffeine intake uh, has not been great. So reduce that. How did you get started in the social impact sector? So I grew up in a very conservative area of Colorado. Um, Colorado is a very interesting state in terms of politics, but I grew up in the area of Colorado Springs um, that's very focused on religion, military, et cetera. Um, and I was about nine when my uncle Keith passed away from AIDS. And at that time, we weren't allowed to talk about why he passed and what happened and uh, his sexuality. And I, as I have gotten older, always think about what that must have felt like for him to not even be able to talk to his family about, um, you know, this terrifying illness that he had and the where he was in life. So that's that's been the event in my life that I've always come back to that drives me to make sure that no one else feels like that or is in that place. What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? You, oh, I guess you're college graduated, but wait, um, I was going to go the internship route. I, I think just start. I think there's a lot of trepidation around diving in and um, finding, you know, the perfect job description to apply for or the perfect service to offer. And I think just getting out there and seeing um, casting a wide net is is very useful in those beginning stages. And also not being afraid to say yes when you get invited to you know, that networking session or the happy hour that might seem useless, just filling your army of, of friends and contacts. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or did not follow? Um, my parents <laughs> gave me lots of advice, advice that I, I did not follow. Um, one thing that I did follow, my parents uh, grew up in a, a very small area of Ohio or mining town that um, was not well-to-do. We did not grow up um, super well-off money-wise. And my dad really wanted me to focus on a business degree uh, because it was practical. And I did do that. Um, but I will say that I've, I've tried to pivot it in a way that's become my own. Um, and that is is focused on Yes, the business side and the practical side of that, but also the social impact side that is is my own work. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. How do people find you? How do people help you? So my website is agilitylab.io. Um, and I have on that site, uh, you can contact me for a quick informational consult, or I have a couple of uh, checklists that will help you think through your risk diversification strategy. And if you're interested in pursuing a project together, you can reach out to me one-on-one -on -one through the site um, or join my email list. Yeah, I'd say just add, if you're looking for that digital privacy tune-up that doesn't just stop at privacy, but also looks at how your fundraising and comms team are approaching a different landscape. It sounds like you know what you're doing. I enjoyed the conversation and thank you for all that you've shared with our audience. Thank you, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university 
to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 